According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Uh, Tell you what, we ought to turn to a Bible verse. Let's turn to uh, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Last Wednesday... We, uh, last Wednesday, we dealt with the sealing of the tomb, the burial of Jesus, the tomb sealed, and the women watch, episodes 39, 40, and 41. And we're going to pick up right there, uh, but there's some concepts I think we want to build on before we get to the resurrection, all right? And uh, you should know the story already. Uh, Jesus uh, died, but he didn't stay dead. We understand that because we are the ones that are walking in the newness of life because our Savior uh, rose again on the third day. So this isn't really a cliffhanger, as it were. Um, Shouldn't be a shock to any one of us uh, and uh, so forth. But perhaps what's not as well known is what happened in between Friday and Sunday. What happened? What was the Lord doing during the time that his body was in the tomb? Uh, What was Jesus doing while he was in the grave before he came forth on Easter Sunday, before he uh, stepped forth into uh, this world again in the glory of his resurrection? Uh, We're told, we're going to look at some passages including Colossians 2, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 3, we're going to talk about the preaching that he did. Second Peter chapter 2, Jude verse 6. We're going to talk about the ministry that he had in Sheol, what he did spiritually uh, while his body was still in, uh, in the grave. And I want to take at least today, and I, I guess we can get through it today if we hit it hard enough. Um, you'll be laughing at me three weeks from now when we're still in this topic uh, before we move on. But I'll show you where we're going here in a moment. And uh, the finish line is in sight. All right, the finish line is in sight, and that's, you know, uh, a good thing. It's also a a bad thing sometimes uh, when you get close to the end of a study and then you get sloppy or you get in a hurry or you get, you think that you've you've, uh, finished when you haven't quite finished. All right, you end up like, you know, the Spurs last night. (laughs) You you think that you you see the end of the game and uh, you're not there yet. It's not over till the, till, uh, the fat lady sings, yeah, that's right. Or Yogi Berra would say, it ain't over till it's over. In any event. Tell you what, let's open with a word of prayer. That way we can set aside distractions. We can ask the Father to bless our study. And then, uh, and then I'll show you where this study is going to go in the coming weeks. Uh, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for all the blessings that you pour out upon us day by day, Father. I thank you that this morning the ladies were able to have a, a good prayer time. And Father, we, uh, I thank you that uh, Dan and Lewis and I were able to have a, a good training time as well. And Father, now this hour we set, that you have set before us, Father, we, uh, we acknowledge that it is a grace provision. We humble ourselves before the authority of your truth. We uh, desire, Father, for you to uh, manifest your faithfulness yet again, that our study today we know is not dependent upon how smart we are to figure these things out. Uh, The study today depends on how faithful you are to lead us into all things, even the deep things of God. So we thank you for the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. We look forward to the feast that you provided for us, and we admit, Father, that this uh, particular subject matter, the victorious proclamation, the preaching that Jesus did to the to the uh, spirits in prison, Father, uh, is not the easiest of subjects to deal with. So we ask for the uh, faithfulness of your teaching ministry to shine forth yet again. Open the eyes of our understanding, Father. Give us the ears to hear. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Uh, we have actually now since January of 2004 been following a harmony of the gospels that is uh we've had as handouts uh quite often and it's sitting there's i believe there's uh copies of this sitting in the rack out in the hallway um if we're out we can print some more and and restock that rack out in the hallway or uh, you can just go to the website and pull it off that's what i've done go to the website and pulled it off 
and you have your uh, your harmony of the gospels and this is a, a wonderful uh scorecard uh as you will to, to follow along in the sequence of events taking matthew mark luke and john and putting them into a into a sequence where they harmonize well together and uh the event numbers are the event numbers that we've been making use of for our own outline as it were uh, this is where we get for example 39 40 and 41 for the burial of Jesus, the tomb sealed, and the women watch. All right, and so the the headings that are found in this harmony are the headings that I've uh, adopted for the uh, process of this study. And each of these sections is separately no, uh, enumerated. So, for example, we're coming to the end of the section we've been in now for some time, called Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem. Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem, and it started with a triumphal entry. Uh, what's usually thought of as Palm Sunday in most uh, uh, either Catholic or Protestant or evangelical churches. They call it Palm Sunday. If you were with us in the study, we think it's more accurate that this actually took place on Monday. Okay, And so I call it Palm Monday quite often, and, and people think I'm strange. But um, in any event, this is what happens when you work your way through in a sequence, item by item, verse by verse, and and so forth. And if you insist on it having to be a Sunday, then you pretty much got a missing Wednesday in your Passion Week. And uh, and the Roman Church admits that that they say, well, we've got a silent Wednesday. We don't know what happened on this mysterious Wednesday, and they've got this gap in their in their Passion Week in order to reach the crucifixion on on Good Friday. And the only reason they do that, of course, is because they're so committed to having their Sunday, Palm Sunday, as a part of their Sunday by Sunday by Sunday uh, liturgy throughout the the uh, Easter season and the you know the Lenten season and uh, and so forth. If you're not absolutely uh, enslaved to the fact that Palm Sunday has to be a Sunday, then I think many of your problems go away. You allow for uh, for that to be Monday, March 30th. Uh, Nisan 10 is the day that the Passover lamb is selected. Nisan 14 is the day that the Passover lamb is slaughtered. And in keeping with the Jewish customs and practices and, and, and requirements of the law, uh, in, for Passover observance, it was on Nisan 10 that they selected their, their lamb without spot, without blemish. And it was on Nisan 14 that they slaughtered their lamb and that they ate their Passover meal that night. Uh, they couldn't leave any of it over to the next day. And we understand the typology of all this has its fulfillment in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, who was crucified on Nisan 14, and who had to be taken off that cross and buried that night, was not allowed to be, you know, remain on the cross overnight. And he was in the ground on Friday, uh, April 3rd, to give it the, the Gregorian dates. But he was in the ground on Nisan 14. And he comes, uh, you know, comes forth again on the third day on, on, uh, Easter Sunday. So in any event, this is the harmony we've been working with uh, from the triumphal entry all the way down to the, uh, the burial of Jesus, the sealing of the tomb, the, the women watching, episodes 39, 40, and 41. And that really wraps up that section of the harmony. And so we're going to move on next to deal with the resurrection through the ascension and say, uh, well, this is a Life of Christ series. And uh, you would think that, well, doesn't that end when the life of Christ is over? (laughs) Well, no, because again, he died, but he didn't stay dead. That's right. The life goes on. And so a life of Christ series is, I guess you could say it's an eternal series because he has eternal life. Uh, But he rose again on the third day. And then for 40 days, he had a resurrection ministry before his ascension. And so we've got 13 more events that we have to cover in the resurrection through ascension portion of the... uh, the harmony. And so this will take us through the end of Matthew 28. This will take us through the end of Mark 16. It takes us down to the end of, of Luke 24 and John 21. So that wraps up the four gospel accounts as we uh, work our way through those 13 episodes in the resurrection through the ascension. Now, we're not going to start that today, though. So what are we going to do today? What are we going to do in between the women, uh, the tomb sealed, and the women watch, uh, and then what happens before the women visit the tomb uh, at sunrise on that Sunday morning? Okay, and why do they get there so early anyway? 
<laughs> you know, uh, we're still paying the price for that today with churches that insist on having these sunrise services on, on Easter Sunday, you know, uh, all because the women got there so early and they decided, hey, let's make that a tradition. Um, so we'll come back to that. We'll uh, we'll deal with the uh, the resurrection events and the and what's really the the uh, the linchpin of the entire thing is, as Paul said, if Christ is not raised, then we're not saved. Our salvation is worthless. The gospel is not the gospel if there is no resurrection. So uh, we'll, we'll deal with that. But for today, though, what are we doing in between episode 41 and episode 1? What happens in between this section and the next? And I'm going to give you some points of study, additional points related to the Lord's time in the grave. And I just gave a, a heading of my own because there is no heading for this in the, uh, the harmony that we're using. Additional points related to the Lord's time in the grave. What did he do while he was in the grave? What did he do while his body was in the grave? What did he do in the spirit while his body was in the grave? In other words, until such time as his uh, body was resurrected. Okay? Well, that body was still in the tomb. What was his spirit doing? He said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Well, then, where did the Father take his spirit? What happened to his spirit? What happens to the righteous dead and when, when they do die? What happens to their soul and their spirit? We're told that uh, you know, the rich man died and was buried, but Lazarus died and his soul was carried away by the angels into Abraham's bosom. So is that what happened to the Lord? Where did he go? He told the thief, this day you will be with me in paradise. So where did he go? His body didn't go to paradise. His body was in Joseph of Arimathea's brand new tomb. All right, It was wrapped up and it was anointed and it was laid there and it stays there until it's brought back to life again and departs the tomb in glory. So what happened to the Lord's soul spirit then? Was it carried away to Abraham's bosom? Was it carried away, which was called paradise at that time? Yes, because that's what he told the repentant thief. This day, this day, you will be with me in paradise. So we understand that he went to Abraham's bosom and what did he do while he was there? That's what we're going to talk about. So... Um, Colossians chapter 2, join me there. We've got three passages, I think dominant passages that we want to look at this hour, uh, followed by some supporting passages. And I think it's important for us to understand a number of things that took place on the cross. So let's back up a little bit, uh, because one of the things that happened on the cross was that the rulers and the authorities were disarmed. And we see this in Colossians 2.15. When he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Many things happened on the cross, including, of course, the fact that your sins were judged, my sins were judged, that the sin of the world was taken away, was was removed, that a sacrifice was effective to the point of not simply covering over sin, but actually removing sin. A huge difference. The Old Testament Levitical sacrifices were observed by the Lord and they satisfied the Lord to the point that he would that they covered the sins of those who appropriated them. And in other words, the wrath of God passed over their sin because he was looking forward to a future sacrifice. But this sacrifice was not an atonement covering uh, that resulted in a passing over. This sacrifice was an eternal sacrifice that resulted in the removal of those sins. The actual removal of those sin. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay, um, A lot of things were happening there on the cross. So that's obviously huge, and we all uh, can relate to that. We all can appreciate that. But other things were also taking place. For example, Jesus Christ was achieving the blood sacrifice necessary for the ratification of the new covenant. The new covenant made with Israel. The new covenant that will be put into effect in the coming millennial kingdom. The basis for that covenant was his work on the cross. That also was achieved on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. And those aren't the only two things. Are you tracking with me so far? The removal of human sin. That is the removal of Adam's sin from from humanity. Removal of the sin of the world, we're told. And then secondly, the, uh, the shedding of the blood for the new covenant that's made with Israel in the millennial kingdom. Those are two activities. Don't conflate the two and don't confuse the two. We're not saved because Jesus uh, shed the blood necessary for Israel's coming covenant. Okay? It's different issues altogether. A third thing happened on the cross. 
The rulers and the authorities were disarmed. Okay? A fourth thing happened on the cross, that the judicial decree of judgment against fallen humanity was made null and void. And if I back up a little bit here, we're going to see that in verse 14. Colossians 2.14 Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now this is a judicial writ, and this writ prior to Friday, April 3rd was valid. It was in force. And every one of us was guilty according to this writ. All right? But this writ is now invalidated. This writ is, Jesus wasn't the only thing nailed to that cross, you understand? All right? Bodily, personally, yes, Jesus was nailed to the cross. But in reality, that's not the only thing nailed there. This writ was also nailed there. And I hope we can understand that as well. Let's uh, spell this out in a point of study. The cross of Jesus Christ formed the basis for God the Father's judicial rulings on our behalf. The cross of Christ formed the basis for God the Father's judicial rulings on our behalf. Until He was on that cross, this judicial ruling could not be put into effect. Until He was on that cross. The writ, the hostile writ was still valid until Jesus went to that cross. Alright? Because it's not until this event that that certificate of debt could be canceled out, could be removed. Okay? Described here in verses 13 through 15. Let me even back up to verse 13. Let's understand the positional truth that's communicated here in this passage. We talk about the divine decrees but the, uh, in eternity past before the foundation of the world, but we have additional decrees. Additional decrees that are uttered in consequence to matters that come before the throne in judgment. Okay? What did God decree when Adam and Eve became sinners? Was God's decree of them simply limited to them and them only? Or was it upon them and their seed? Them and all humanity as the, as the federal representative of humanity. All right, They became fallen creatures. And this decree was then issued on behalf of humanity. That has to get canceled out. And it can't be canceled out until Jesus Christ is on the cross. So verse 13 says, and this is why the, uh, the, the joy of, of baptism is so remarkable, that we understand the identification we have with his death, with his burial, with his resurrection. And it's all spelled out here in Colossians chapter 2. It's in him that these realities take place. So um, it's, um, let's see, verse 9, in him, that's in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Undiminished deity walked this earth in Christ. It's also in Him that you have been made complete. We as church-age believers are complete in a way that Israel never was, in a way that Jewish believers, Gentile believers of the Old Testament never were. They were saved, yes, but not completed or perfected as you and I are perfected in church, in, in the church. All right? So, uh, you know, it's one thing to be told, you shall be holy for I am holy, and Israel was. Well, what about you shall be perfect as I am perfect? That's for the church. And we are the people who have been perfected in Christ. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. The, the blood of bulls and goats could never make perfect. The conscience could never be made perfect because you have the year after year after year reminder that, hey, we don't measure up. All right. Also in him, verse 10, you've been made complete. He is the head over all rule and authority. Our perfection in Him, our completion in Him, our submission to His headship equips us to be fully engaged in the angelic conflict in ways that Old Testament believers never could. All right, Saul had to deal with his demons, and David had to deal with the demons, and all the you know there were uh, Job had to deal with satanic attack, and there was plenty of angelic conflict in the Old Testament, but those believers were not suited as you and I are suited. With Ephesians 6 armor, with position in Christ, with, with uh, patriological privilege to go in prayer as sons and ask for the things that we can ask for as sons in Christ. 
It's it's uh, the by virtue of us being in Him, who is the head over all rule and authority, we can understand where our confidence comes from in this angelic conflict. Also, verse eleven: In Him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. There's a spiritual reality for us that corresponds to what their ritual was all about. All right, why did they circumcise their male children on the eighth day? What did that picture, what did that uh, figure, what did that symbolize? What's the reality that that typology points to in our life? And how do we embrace our own spiritual circumcision as it comes to casting off this flesh and putting on Christ? Then it says, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. The reality of our positional truth in Christ. This is what the Holy Spirit does. In the moment of our salvation, we are baptized into union with Jesus Christ. We identify with his death, with his burial, with his resurrection, with his ascension. We are in Christ. All right, And as Christ was di- uh, died on the cross, so we are dead to sin. Our sin natures were nailed to the cross. As Christ was buried, so we too were buried. As Christ was raised, so we too walk in the newness of life. We identify with the reality of what Jesus Christ achieved on our behalf. All right, so that's when you were uh, buried, buried with him in baptism. And so the study, actually, while we say, what did Jesus do while he was buried? What did Jesus do while he was in the grave? becomes very practical for you and I, we should consider what do we do then? Being, having been buried once, and now that he's out of the grave, what do we do now in him, walking in this newness of life? All right, He made a proclamation while he was in the grave. Do we have a connection to that proclamation? Do we have an expectation that we too are going to preach as he preached when he was in the grave? What, from what perspective do we as dead creatures preach? Okay. Remember, we're dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So do we ever preach on the basis of our deadness? Or do we all, do all we do is preach on the basis of our newness of life? I think we ought to be able to preach both. Okay, And preaching according to our deadness can have uh, quite an impact on those who are still dead. Right? Maybe more so than preaching from the perspective of our new life. They don't have a frame of reference for that. But if we preach from the standpoint of our deadness, and they're still dead, then maybe that will be uh, something we could at least consider as, a, uh, as, as the scope of our preaching might include. All right. So when you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. And how did he forgive us? On what is the basis for the forgiveness? And this is what it really, this is to me, this is the most important aspect of anything I'm going to say today. Because God just can't forgive because he wants to forgive. If he forgives and compromises on his righteousness and justice, then that is an, that is the wrong kind of forgiveness. Okay? God is being hypocritical. God is being untrue to himself. He has to forgive, not only because he wants to, but because he wants to and he can. He wants to and he's free to do so. And he's free to love. He's free to be gracious. He's free to forgive. Why? Because his righteousness is satisfied. His justice has been executed. And he's not a hypocrite. And he's not unfair. And this is the biggest element because fallen humanity doesn't want to understand this. And they don't understand this. They think that, well, God can just love whoever he wants to love and he can just forgive whoever he wants to forgive. And he can wink at sin somehow, saying, well, okay, yeah, you're a bad person, but that's all right, I forgive you anyway. Well, wait a minute. Is there a basis for that forgiveness? Does he have the freedom to forgive and the freedom to love? And I would put forth, I believe the scripture puts forth, that God has no such freedom until his righteousness is satisfied, until he's propitiated. And that way he's not a hypocrite. That way he's not a liar. This is huge, okay? Not only for this morning, but in in our angelology courses as well. If there is any kind of whiff of, of thought that God could be a liar, 
then Satan might have a basis to say, I will be like the Most High God. Okay? All he has to do is prove God a liar one time. And Satan can, can claim victory and say, I'm like the Most High God because I'm a liar. <laughs> no, let God be found true, though every man a liar, right? That's the reality of it. So when God forgives sin, it's because he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It's not because he's just so merciful and so loving and so gracious that he forgives us anyway. Okay? There has to be a basis for that forgiveness. And the basis is what his son achieved on our behalf and what satisfied his righteousness, what satisfied his justice. And so this is what happened now. The cross of Jesus Christ formed the basis for God the Father's judicial rulings on our behalf. Let's understand what humanity was the subject of. Humanity was the subject of, and I phrase this in a particular way so that we don't have to necessarily do a complete exegesis of the verse, but a dogmatic hostile debt certificate. A dogmatic hostile debt certificate. All right. Humanity was the subject of a dogmatic, that is the dogma, the decrees or the dogma of Scripture. It's a Greek word dogma here. Okay. Humanity was the subject of a dogmatic, hostile debt certificate issued in Adam's name. And for everyone under that name, they're still, they're still subject to it. Okay. Now, the neat thing of having it taken out of the way, the neat thing of having it nailed to the cross, is that as soon as you identify with the cross, then you identify with this certificate having been nailed there. All right, at which point then you're free and clear. You're free and clear. So humanity was the subject of a dogmatic hostile debt certificate. And, and this, is, this just comes down to the basis by which our salvation can be freely offered. All right, the judicial decrees. How it is that even though I am still experientially a sinner, I'm not judicially a sinner. Because my sins were imputed to Jesus Christ. And through justification and through imputation, I am made righteous and I am declared righteous. Does that boggle your mind? I just say hallelujah. To be declared a saint, it is a judicial decree that I am a saint, I am righteous. That, is, that just boggles the mind because I know experientially I am not righteous. By my experience, by my practice, by my deeds, by my works... I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm vile, okay? Every time I sing that hymn, the, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives, right? I, I can't sing that verse without plugging my name in there because that's me, but not judicially. I have a court order that declares that I am righteous. And this decree has been vacated, okay? This debt certificate hostile to us has been vacated. So, you know, this could be helpful to you if you're witnessing to somebody or someone that has a hang-up about what they've done. I've had people tell me that they don't think they can be saved because they've done so many things. They've done some bad things. And I say, you know, it's not the bad things you've done that's going to put you in hell. And show them this debt certificate, you know, this hostile decree. And say, do you think you did something to deserve that hostile decree? That was put into effect long before you ever came along. This is, this is a, a condition of your Adamic estate in Adam. That decree is against the Adamic race. Perhaps you'll have some uh, effective uh, discussion uh, related to these things. All right, secondly now, point B. That certificate was nailed to the cross when Jesus was nailed to the cross. That certificate was nailed to the cross when Jesus was nailed to the cross. So it's done. It's done. Think about, you know, Martin Luther nailing his theses to the Wittenberg door, right? Well, here's a certificate, and it's nailed to something far better than the Wittenberg door. Nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. And by the way, your sin nature was also nailed there. My sin nature was also nailed there. There, there were a number of items nailed to that, to that particular lumber on that day. It was nailed to the cross. So, what are you going to identify with? Are you still subject to that decree? <laughs> no. No. Only those that still identify with Adam are subject to that decree. 
In Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive. Now if you reject the provision, if you reject the, the, the nature of that decree, then you're still subject to it. But when you identify with that cross, to that cross where that decree was nailed, you're now in Christ. In Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive. In Christ, in Christ we are the righteousness of God. And so we can appreciate that as well. Now, something else that happened here. The moment this decree was nailed to the cross, the rulers and the authorities were disarmed. Point C. The nailing of that certificate disarmed the rulers and the authorities. The nailing of that certificate disarmed the rulers and authorities and provided for Jesus' immediate triumphant display. The nailing of that certificate disarmed the rulers and the authorities and provided for Jesus' immediate triumphant display. So what we're told here in verse, uh, verses 14 and 15, having nailed it to the cross, when he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. A public display. In other words, it was manifest for everyone that cared to look. Manifest everyone that cared to look. Now don't confuse this immediate triumphant display with a subsequent display that you and I are still parading in. Um, this display has a follow-up triumphal parade. It's called the church age. You and I are still marching in the Father's triumph in Christ. We'll talk about that here in a moment in 2 Corinthians 2.14. But for now, let's just look at this triumph in verse 15. When he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities... And this too, I think, bears comment. It bears comment because I think it shows the nature of God's decrees and how they, what is decreed in heaven is manifest on earth. Uh, what is decreed and inscribed, okay, as in terms of a writ, what is decreed in heaven and the reality then that exists. In other words, when God says, let there be, then there is. His declaration alters reality. The reality becomes what he decrees. And this is, this is alien. This is foreign to us. We've got some uh, politicians that think this is true. They think that they can pass a law and then immediately, you know, uh, they, they pass a gun control bill and immediately we have no more gun crimes. Right? And what happens? You know, they, well, we passed a law. Why didn't reality just immediately conform to our imagined uh, utopia? Okay, well, I think it's testimony to human arrogance and, and things don't happen the way we think they're going to happen just because we passed a law or we issued a decree. But when God issues a decree, when he nails that decree to the cross, these rulers and these authorities were immediately disarmed. What were they disarmed from? What were they divested of? What was their previous armament before this was nailed to the cross? And then what was stripped away from them now that this decree was posted and nailed on the cross? Okay, We're told that it was effective. We're told that it was immediate. God's just not passing a judicial decree that has no immediate effects. This has an immediate effect. They were disarmed. They were disarmed. And they've been disarmed ever since. That's why I find it so pathetic when Christians go ahead and rearm them. You know, what are you doing that for? Your enemy is defeated. You you give them weapons to to hit you with? All right. I do like 2 Corinthians 2.14. We we taught this back in the day. Um, But let's not confuse this uh, punctiliar triumph with our present linear triumph, if those terms mean anything to you. Uh, At the cross, there was a triumph that exhibited at that time, that was displayed at that time. We call it the tactical victory of God at the the cross, or the strategic victory, all right? Uh, That then has a follow-up in the church age, okay? 2 Corinthians 2.14 discusses this. Blessed be, as one of the uh, delights that we have in Christ, thanks be to God who always leads us. This is linear. This is present tense. Always leads us. This is all day, every day. If you're walking in the light, 
All right. If you have fellowship with the Father and the Son, what do you think the Father's doing in that fellowship? He's leading us in this triumph. Who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. And if you were part of that study back in the day, um, you know, it was the first year of the Second Corinthians study when we did chapters 1, 2, and 3. And we talked about what a Roman triumph was all about and how the conquering general then led all of his slaves were, pro- were in procession in front of him, captured treasure, captured booty, was, uh, was in the train in front of him, including the, uh, the perfumes and the, and the ointments from, the, from the, the land that had been conquered. And that aroma would just precede him. And then he followed in that chariot, and the slave had the wreath over his head, whispering into his ear. Okay, That was the nature of a Roman triumph. That's our Christian walk. Okay? And then typically following behind the conqueror then were his children, his slaves, his household was, was uh, blessed to walk behind the conqueror in his, in his train. Okay, That's what we get to do. That's what the church age is. The dispensation of the church is the Father's triumph in Christ. And that should be a daily, uh, a daily celebration, a daily victory. So don't confuse the follow-up triumphal parade that we take part in with this immediate triumphant display. It's a triumphant display that the Father looked upon the Son. You know, when the darkness ended and light once again shone upon the cross, and Jesus Christ said, it is finished, and the Father was satisfied. It wasn't just the Father looking upon the victorious Son. It was all the angels as well. All right? And those rulers and authorities were disarmed. Absolutely disarmed. What was their armament? Point D. The specific armament that was made void, we're told in Hebrews chapter 2, is the power of death and the fear of death which Satan uses to enslave fallen man. The specific armament made void. What, what weapon did they have before the cross that they don't have anymore for those who appropriate the value of the cross? I think Hebrews 2 tells us. The specific armament made void. And they're not devoid of weapons. They still have certain weapons and certain tools and certain schemes, we're told. We're not ignorant of his devices. But this power of death, this fear of death, that's off the table now. That's, that's permanently been removed. Again, for those who appropriate the, uh, the value of the cross to their account. Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. The specific armament made void is the power of death and the fear of death which Satan uses to enslave fallen man. Consider what power spiritual death has over the unbeliever. Okay? The power that uh, uh, operational death has over a carnal believer. And there, is a, there is actually a working power in those spheres of death. And that working power accomplishes things. They're not good. They accomplish things in, uh, in our thinking that aren't good. They cause us, it's like being under the influence. They shape how we look at things. They shape uh, how we think about things. They, they hamper our decision making. This power of death. This fear of death. And this is what's revoked in Christ. This is what's disarmed by the disarming of the rulers and the authorities. Hebrews chapter 2. It wasn't angels that He came to do this for. It was for us. Okay? We see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. We're studying the angel of the Lord right now in our angelology. But it wasn't the angel of the Lord that ministered with twelve disciples and, and went to the cross. Okay? It was the Word made flesh that ministered to the twelve apostles and went to the cross. Made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now was that in the angelic realm or the human realm that he tasted death for everyone? It was the human realm that he tasted death for everyone. 
For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. It's the suffering lamb that was able to become the victorious lamb. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. And I find that interesting. Of all the vocabulary we've ever studied related to angels, we never see them called brothers. Okay? Some of them are called B'nai Ha'elohim, sons of God, but we never find them called brothers. Gabriel doesn't talk about Brother Michael. I've got to get back to help Brother Michael fight against uh, the Prince of Persia. They never refer to each other as brothers or as brethren. All right? That's limited to our experience. Verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. He had a human nature from the moment of his hypostatic union, but to fully identify with the human experience, the Word had to become flesh. And he was born through water. He was born in, he was given a body. He grew up for some 33 and more years in, in a physical body. He likewise partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Now I'm linking this made powerless, render powerless, I'm linking with the disarmed application from Colossians 2. Alright? Through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Okay? Now they have a physical life, but they have a spiritual death. And that is an existence that that uh, operates through fear. That's a, that, is a, that is an existence that is enslaved to the one who had power of death and, the, and, and could manipulate that fear of death. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. That is, those in humanity that appropriate uh, the provision on, on the uh, basis of faith. All right. So the specific armament made void is the power of death and the fear of death, which Satan uses to enslave fallen man. That's that fear of physical death, but I think more than that, fear of spiritual death. The fear that comes of being a spirit creature, having a dead human spirit in the universe created by the living God. Consider that. Consider how troubled an unbeliever can be in their dead human spirit. We have, we have that expression in Scripture. Pharaoh was troubled in spirit. All right. Nicodemus, or Nicodemus, Nebuchadnezzar. Okay. Troubled in spirit before his salvation. A dead human spirit can, in fact, be troubled as we relate it to its interaction with God in his holiness and his judicial function. All right. So. I said we had three dominant passages we want to deal with. Colossians 2 is one of them. Colossians 2 is one of them. We understand that something happened while Jesus was in the grave. And part of that included a display and a disarming of the rulers and the authorities. Okay, We get that out of Colossians 2. A second passage we can look at now is Ephesians chapter 4. We're told that he descended into Sheol. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 9. So point 2 in the outline. Jesus Christ's descent into Sheol provided for his captivity of the captives. He had some captives that needed to be taken captive. Say, how do you take captives captive? Well, if they're somebody else's captives and then you take them captive, then you have taken captives captive. And that's significant. Because you're not just rescuing somebody else's captives and turning them loose. And saying, alright, you're on your own, you belong to yourself. You're not just simply busting open a, a prison camp and then just letting them roam free. You're actually taking custody of those captives. They are now your captives. Alright? So, I think that's another concept when we're when we're redeemed out of the slave market of sin we're no longer bond slaves to sin we're now bond slaves to well who redeemed us okay do we own ourselves well did we redeem ourselves it's just human arrogance that says oh i'm free now i can do whatever i want to do well who freed you 
Who bought you? Who do you belong to now? All right. Ephesians 4, 9. Now, um, this is part of the mystery of the church that's unfolded here in these chapters. And uh, part of the, uh, the great glory of being uh, in Christ, walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. You see how the chapter begins in verse 1. And um, how we operate with, one, uh, with and towards one another, how we are oriented towards God. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. You see that in verse 4? One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Ours is the great stewardship of paterology. Ours is the great stewardship that identifies with the Father. You know, Israel was looking, they had, a, they, had a, they had a Christology they were looking forward to. All their shadows were Christological shadows. All of their hope was a future messianic hope. And what did the Messiah do when he arrived? You know, what did he tell Israel? You've been waiting for me for 2,000 years, here I am. He says, no one comes to the Father but by me. When the Messiah appeared to Israel, he said, I'm not the goal, I'm bringing you to the Father. Okay? And that's our stewardship. Our stewardship walks with the Father in Christ. But each one, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And we'll be dealing with this uh, next Sunday in in Romans chapter 12. The fact that we are spiritually gifted in the church age. And uh, not only do we receive a gift, but some of us become gifts to certain lampstands, to certain flocks. So therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And so we have here a citation from Psalm 68, and it's brought into a church application. When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. When he ascended on high. How many ascensions has Jesus had? Okay. And part of what we're going to deal with, the last uh, segment of our harmony here, says the resurrection through the ascension. The ascension. And this uh, harmony outline assumes that there's only one. I'm going to dispute that. I'm going to dispute that. I think we can prove at least two, and I believe we can prove three different ascensions. How many times did he appear in heaven in those 40 days? before his final departure that, uh, from the Mount of Olives. Okay? Now, the one that's usually called the ascension is the final ascension, uh, the one from which he, he left all the 11 disciples standing on the Mount of Olives looking up like, you know, turkeys in the rain. Okay? You've heard that. I mean, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's, it's funny, so I repeat it as if it is true. Um, if, if somebody tells me one day that it's not true, I'm just repeating an urban legend, I'm going to be sad. Because I'm a, I'm a city boy from Seattle, I don't know farms or turkeys or anything. But what I've been told is that turkeys are so stupid that when the raindrops hit them on the head, they look up to see you know what's hitting them on the head. And even conceivably, they can end up drowning as they're looking up with you know water pouring into their mouth. I don't know. But that's what the disciples were doing on the, on the, on the Ascension Sunday, right? Ten days before Pentecost. And uh, so that would have been, let's see, if Pentecost was uh, May 24th, then uh, this would have been May 14th that, uh, that Jesus ascended. But I believe he had multiple ascensions. Multiple ascensions. And we'll discuss that as we work our way through here. Um, because he had an ascension where he had to cleanse the heavenly temple. And he had an ascension where he brought the captivity into the Father's house where there are many dwelling places. And he had this, uh, what we're looking at here in terms of captivity being brought captive. He had the ascension where paradise was transferred out of Abraham's bosom, or where Abraham's bosom was transferred out of Sheol and caught up into the, into the third heaven, caught up into the, into the heavenly dimension of God's presence. All right? Until, until the cross... Abraham paradise could not be in God's presence. Paradise had to be away from God's presence because the sin was not yet removed. Sin was simply covered, atoned for and covered, passed over until removed. 
So there are at least two ascensions, I believe three ascensions. And we'll prove that as we get to the point. Um, you know, he tells Mary Magdalene, don't touch me, I've not yet ascended to my father. But then later on, he says, touch me. Okay, go ahead and touch me. You know, see that I'm flesh and bone. See that, you know, the spirit doesn't have, you know, feel the hole in my side, feel the holes in my hands. Okay, so with Thomas, he says, touch me. With Mary, don't touch me yet. I have not yet ascended to my father. What's the difference? Okay, he said specifically, I've not yet ascended to my father. So I think in between, he had ascended to his father. He had brought the captives to the father. He had cleansed the, the, the heavenly temple in Hebrews 9. Then he had returned back to engage his 40 days of, of resurrection ministry on planet Earth. At which point he was touchable. Okay? Because whatever the objection was uh, on Sunday was no longer valid by that point of time. One week later. Okay? So... Um, when he ascended, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? All right. What happens here in Ephesians is we get a theological interpretation of Psalm 68. What does it mean? Except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. He had descended into the lower parts of the earth. And this is why we have to take some caution with this. This is why we have to ask, what was he doing while his body was laying in the tomb? This is not just a a, a cadaver inside a a tomb on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Okay, That's not deep. That's a surface level tomb or cut into uh, into a hillside with a stone rolled in front of it. That's not the lower parts of the earth. Okay? That's not the dimension of Sheol, which you can't dig deep enough to get to Sheol anyway, right? Um, because it's not in the linear dimensions of our physical material plane. Um, the physical universe, you know, we, we say heaven is up and hell is down, but that's just language of, of convenience related to the, the dimensions that, that, uh, that exist. All right, so what does this mean that he ascended except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? Now, this is why we need to understand that he descended to the earth when he was made for a little while lower than the angels. But that's not where the captives were. So he descended even below that. He descended even below that to bring captivity captive. All right. To bring captivity captive. He led captive a host of captives, not a flock of captives, not a pack of captives, not a bunch of captives, not a um, dozen captives. What are some other collective noun references, right? Not a herd of captives. That's my hobby. I have my hobby. I have several hobbies. I like to pick out the ones that don't cost anything. But one of my hobbies is uh, collective nouns. Right, collective nouns, like a parliament of owls, a murder of crows, a gaggle of geese, okay, a flock of sheep. That way I can, I can laugh when somebody uses the wrong collective noun for the wrong animal, right? And say, ah, that's wrong. That's wrong. All right. Um, why is the word host used here? And I find it interesting. In what scope, what realm do we find the term host applied? Angelic. Angelic and demonic. In spirit capacity. Okay? He's the Lord of hosts because he's the Lord God of the armies, but those aren't human armies. Not a physical host. Anyway, when he led captivity captive, who were the captives? You've got a week to chew on this because I'll be dealing with it next week. When he went to Sheol and he preached, who was he preaching at? And what response did he expect? Was it a, you know, we understand preaching provokes a response. Gospel preaching provokes a response of either acceptance or rejection. Bible preaching provokes a response of either acceptance and application or rejection and consequences, right? 
Preaching provokes a response. What was the response Jesus was preaching for? And what was the response he observed? And who are the captives that he took that he took captive? I've got more questions than answers this week. We'll have more answers next week. Um, but he descended to the lower parts of the earth. And he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. When he ascended, what position was he granted? Was he just simply restored back to what he had in the first place? No. He actually was magnified and exalted with a greater glory than he had before the glory that he had with the Father before the world was. Okay, We talked about that in the high priestly prayer of John 17. Jesus asked that he might receive his glory back, the glory that he had with the Father before the world was. And the Father said, oh, you're getting more than that. <laughs> okay, You're getting more than that. That's what you laid aside when you humbled yourself and you became a man. You're going to get that back and more. Because you were obedient to the point of death, because of what you achieved, Jesus Christ is, is provided an even greater glory than he ever had before. All right. So uh, we got some subpoints under this as well. We need to go back and take a look at Psalm 68. We'll do that under point A. We will also uh, see some verses that help us to relate to what is the lower parts of the earth. You know, are we are we talking about gold mines and diamond mines and are digging, you know, terrestrial in, into uh, the the geology of things? No, we're talking about the dimension of Sheol. We're talking about the the realm of the departed spirits. And uh, then in point C, we'll talk about gifts because in Psalms it says he received gifts, but in Ephesians it says he gave gifts. All right, so we need to understand how both are true. And, and how, because he received gifts, he, he now is bestowing gifts. And what those gifts are that he bestows. The apostles and uh, prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers there in verse 11. And then at a point C, we get to 1 Peter 3.19. Let me just close with this. 1 Peter 3.19. I'll give you a teaser for what we're going to deal with next week. Did I say I thought we could do this whole thing in one one week? Yeah, I don't know. I gotta quit making predictions because there's no way to know. First Peter three nineteen. Look about what our Savior did. Christ also in three eighteen. Christ also died for sins once for all. Once for all. <laughs> there's no more of that year after year after year. Here we go again. Another day of atonement. Here we go again. No, no. Once and for all. Sinner, receive it, right? Once and for all. Brother, believe it. The just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And we all can appreciate that verse. We all can preach that verse. We all understand that verse. We all identify with that verse. That verse is the easy verse. Then we look at verse 19. Made alive in the Spirit, in which in which, or by which, neuter singular, reference to spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Ah. Okay. Now we've got a puzzle. Now we've got to figure out, when did he do that? When did he do that? When did he go and make that proclamation to the spirits now in prison? You know, we've, we've been... Nine years in this Life of Christ study, we've seen him go to Galilee, we've seen him go to Perea, we've seen him go to uh, the Phoenician region, we've seen him go to Jerusalem a few times, we saw him go up on a mountain, we saw him walk across the Sea of Galilee. Did we ever see him go to a prison and proclaim to spirits in prison? Not something he did in the flesh. Again, back up, in which? In the spirit put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So with dead flesh and living spirit, we're told, he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. You want to know what he did in between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday? All right. He wasn't just laying there doing nothing. His body was laying there doing nothing. But he was busy. He had a message to preach. And Ephesians says he descended to the 
lower parts of the earth. Here he went to the spirits in prison, and they're also in the lower parts of the earth. We'll, we'll discuss that dimension where the imprisonment takes place. Who once were disobedient. These spirits we're talking about, his audience, his spirit audience, were at a previous time, on a previous occasion, were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. So, how thankful am I that we're teaching this life of Christ topic in the aftermath of, of an angelology study where we've already evaluated the Nephilim episode of Genesis chapter 6. Okay, It's going to pay some dividends next week as we take a look at this preaching audience in, uh, in prison. Is that enough? Got enough to chew on for the next seven days? <laughs> well, I'm a minute long, so chew on it, and uh, we'll come back. Uh, we'll come back next week. Did you have a question? Yes, one of the ascensions was to cleanse the heavenly temple, and that's in Hebrews chapter nine. Ask that again tonight. That's a great question for tonight. What did he cleanse it from? Yeah, that's a great question. I'll answer that tonight. Okay. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your mercy, love, and grace. Father, thank you for all that you and your son together achieved on that cross. We, we barely identify a fraction of it, Father. We're so myopic. Um, we're, we're human and human thinking. Thank you for allowing us to be uh, Christ-centered instead of human-centered in our thinking and to recognize that so much more took place. You disarmed the rulers and the authorities. You triumphed over them. You manifest your son. You put him on display. Father, he went to then preach a proclamation. These things, Father, just uh, boggle our minds sometimes, but we thank you for being faithful. Open our minds to understand the Scripture. Teach us not only what it means, but what the significance is of that for our application, for our Christian walk. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.